Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Alim Mahabir, your host for this episode. In this episode, we are very grateful to be joined by Christina Iwana Dravomir. She's an immigrant and scholar of social justice and human rights. She is clinical assistant professor in global liberal studies at New York University and previously taught at Queen Mary University of London and Columbia University. She also consults with the United Nations. Today, we're very happy to be featuring her book, Power on the Move, Adivasi and Roma, Accessing Social Justice, published by Bloomsbury in 2022. A very, very warm welcome to the podcast, Christina. Very happy to be talking to you and really excited about the conversation we're about to have. Thank you so much for having me here, Alim. Also very happy to come as a guest on the podcast and talk to you a little bit further about the book and maybe more. That's great. That's why we're here. So first off, it's a question I ask, I, I think almost everyone who comes on the on these episodes. Could you please tell me a little bit more about yourself? Um, going a bit beyond what I just said in the intro, you know, your personal story, how you came to be who you are today and what experiences prompted you to write the book we're featuring on the episode? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question, um, Ali. Um, as you rightfully stated in the beginning, I am an immigrant myself. I came from Romania originally and right now I'm based in um, New York in the US. So I came here some time ago and I underwent, I think, a full immigrant experience. And in doing that, I um, became very much aware about certain strategies that immigrants have of adapting to new countries. What does it mean to be somewhere where the government does not fully recognize you? What kind of tools do you have at your disposal? How important is one's community, especially when you are abroad or when you are surrounded by others who do not recognize you necessarily as an equal? I also um, become aware, became aware of what it means to be Romanian or Eastern European. As probably you know, and probably many of the listeners know, you become aware of your national identity, not so much within the country, unless, of course, you joined the Nationals Club and so on, which obviously um, that was not the case. Um, You become aware of your national identity or of your ethnic identity um, even more when you are surrounded by people who are different, when you are abroad, when you are traveling and so on. So um, learning how I was Romanian was an experience and continues to be one as I was going through it. Um, so I became aware like how, how important ethnicity is, how difficult it is sometimes to explain yourself in the eyes of the other who, are, who you are encountering, how difficult it is to access certain rights that you take for granted when you are home or when you are recognized by that. So in doing that, I started my journey in learning about immigration from a scholarly perspective. So I started doing my PhD. I did my PhD at the 
um, New School for Social Research in politics, also in New York, when I started my my work um, under the guidance of the late Aristide Zolberg, who's a great uh, migration scholar. And um, I wrote my first dissertation on migration issues within the United States. But because um, I was very much aware of the complexity of the issues um, surrounding migration taking place um, in Romania and beyond, I wanted to do a little bit of a further work on um, Romanian migrants and on mobility in general. So this is what it took me back to Romania um, to to study this. But moreover, because I was already familiar with um, the South India South um, Asian context, I also became aware of forms of traditional mobility or nomadic traditions that are a part of the South Asian continent as well. So this is how it all started by integrating my own experience as a migrant, my own experience of mobility into the greater framework of what does it mean to be on the move? What does it mean to be mobile? How do you access rights when you are not fully recognized by a state or by a government? So this is where I started with this, and this why um, this is why I thought about this book, and I started exploring these issues of accessing rights, accessing power when you are mobile, when you are on the move. Well, I'm definitely um, having read the book, see um, you know um, your passion and and your personal motivation being a driving force um, behind it. And uh, let me just say at the, at the forefront, I really enjoyed reading it. I, I want to expand um, or dig in into what you said with regards to, um, you know, um, the communities you focused on. Something um, that you mentioned throughout the book, uh, you talk about uh, people embodying these identities. Um, often there's a politics of naming, how naming creates uh hierarchical taxonomy of power. Uh, and I'm wondering, could you explain this concept with reference to use of the terms um, used by um, the community members themselves, Roma, Adavasi, Narakurovar, Indigenous. Um, you talked about the associations with these terms and concepts related to nomadism and even negative connotations related to criminality, uh, class and caste. So could you elaborate on this and maybe explain how these taxonomies continue to persist? Yeah, that's, thank you. I uh, think for your kind uh, words as well, Alim, about this. So as, as um, you know, the book focuses on mobility and looks at two particular communities that are very far apart geographically. One of the communities that I particularly work with is a Roma community um, that is located in Romania. And another one is a Narikurevar community that is located in India. So um, this is an uneven comparison and one that for scholarly eyes, it raises very quickly suspicions. Um, how come am I comparing to such different communities and why would I work um, at a comparative level with um, considering all those dramatic differences between them? So the reason why I decided to, to focus my work on this is along the lines of what you just said, which is the politics of naming. 
So when I uh, started my work uh, with um, all communities with Romania, I was very much preoccupied about this taxonomies of power and how these taxonomies of powers were created and reinforced to continuously marginalize people. How these taxonomies of power are so historically rooted that people very often take them for granted and they do not come to the awareness or to the uh, reflexivity of people in everyday life. And of course, this extends to many other many other areas as well. I mean, when it comes to racism, when it comes to, to discrimination, um, these taxonomies really produce and reinforce a mechanism of exclusion and sometimes even terrorizing communities and individuals. So I think it's even more important to be more reflexive about these taxonomies of power. And being Romanian, I was, I was, um, I was already aware of these taxonomies and about how how damaging they have been for such a long time within the, within the history of Romania. And when I traveled for the first time in India, I was very surprised to see how uh, the same kind of categorization taxonomies were very much used within um, another country very far uh, apart. And these taxonomies were, in both countries, so related to existent or sometimes even imagined form of mobility or nomadism. So what I mean is that in both countries or on both continents even, we have communities that have been assigned as traditionally nomadic. Um, if they are still nomadic today, it's a very good question that I'm not aiming to answer in this talk, but this is something that could be discussed um, among other scholars. But there is this association with nomadism and this association with nomadism um, has been historically grounding in a way that continuously excludes people. So this is what it brought together. How come these communities that are so different when you look at this at the surface level, um, living under different governments, um, living under very, di uh, very different geographical uh, situations, under different uh, rules of the society, are actually considered to be nomadic in spite of the reality, contemporary realities, and because of their nomadism are continuously racialized, um, they are marginalized, and as a result of it, they um, have a much more difficult time in accessing justice. So I think that a lot of the work that really needs to be done, it's unpacking this politics of naming. And politics of naming, what I mean is, and that is for following Charles Taylor's idea that uh, when um, we are asserting our identity, this is a double movement, one that comes from us. Uh, this is who I am um, and this is who I want to be seen in the world. But identity, it's always, it always has a duality. It's not only what you see yourself as, but it's how others are seeing you as well. And this juxtaposition of how do you see yourself and how others see you in the world creates one's identity. And this is um, a move that sometimes leads to inclusion, sometimes to exclusion, sometimes to racialization, sometimes to certain privileges within the society. So for me, it was very important, this unpacking of the politics of naming. And because we know already the, the discriminatory discourses that are addressed, um, in conjunction with the communities that have been nomadic, 
in the past, at least. I wanted to see how the communities themselves understand their own identity. How do they want to be seen and how is that they would like to proclaim themselves within the world? I have to say that this is not an easy, easy thing to do because we already know that sometimes um, minority communities are asked by researchers or are asked by the majority to define themselves continuously. And I know this at every level that it's really hard to define yourself. From defining yourself when you're applying for a job or for a grant or for a book proposal to identifying yourself to researchers when they're asking you questions, um, that means taking yourself outside of who you are and trying to define yourself according to the norms of the society and according to the person who is in front of you or the potential reader or the potential audience. So it's a very difficult game. And I think that as researchers, especially in social sciences, we've been asking a lot of communities to identify themselves in this way. So this is why when I was looking at this book and having this in mind, instead of asking them simply, how do you identify yourself or how do you see yourself? I wanted to engage in a much more um, complex understanding of identity. And therefore I employed ethnography and visual analysis and open-ended interviews in order to understand in their own words, within their own communities, within their own interactions, how do they navigate multiple identities that we all inhabit? This is not particular to any community. We all have multiple identities that are juxtaposing at all times. And through this rich engagement with the communities to hopefully amplify their voices outside of the communities and participate into breaking a lot of this stereotyping that is the unfortunate result of this politics of naming most of the time. So to produce or destabilize the field a little bit um, and produce other kind of categorizations and self-identifications that can contribute differently to this politics of naming and to accessing rights and dignity for individuals and communities. Um, thank you for that um, response. I um, must say, uh, uh, me as well, I, I looked at the prospect of that comparative analysis with a little bit of suspicion, but it's one I think um, you were successful at accomplishing in that you provided what I thought was an extremely nuanced uh, uh, analysis and narrative to go along with it um, in the form of the book itself. And uh, I will also say that I think you also excelled in terms of um, amplifying the voices of those who were marginalized and you focused on the Roma and the Naruko Bar, um, their thoughts, feelings, and opinions, um, essentially embodying um, you know, the, the narrative in the book, uh, it, it really showed, it really showed in any work that you did. Uh, so one of the things uh, you mentioned um, is the idea of um, these uh, marginalized groups, you know, how they come to self-identify and how they, you know, express themselves or how they see themselves on their own terms. So I, I, I want to put it to you, you know, um, Roma or, or Narukovar, 
or if you could speak on on their behalf um you know what do these identities what do these labels um mean to them oftentimes i i want to uh the the term gypsy is also used um which some may consider politically incorrect as you point out in the book uh, but still a lot of people with these identities both in india and in romania self-identify with them and in a positive what they see as a positive life and some may see that as problematic so yeah could you elaborate uh, shed some light on the reasons behind these self-identities yeah i think so one of thank you so much for for this i mean, um one of the things that was extremely puzzling to me when i started this process was the fact that communities in india are labeled as the G word, right? Um, and I was wondering, how is it possible? We already know that this label is a mistake, a historical mistake that was given to um, communities that were present within Europe because um, uh, the judges still out on this, like why were they given this label if the term comes from Greek? referring to untouchability or if it comes from Egyptian um, because they were wrongfully thought that they were actually coming from Egypt and so on. In any case, the terminology is not only problematic, as you rightfully mentioned, but it's also completely false, right? Um, so European mislabeled for very many years, very many communities and mistreated them and created systems of laws that continuously excluded them and racialized them and so on. Um, so, but this was a European construction, right? So you can imagine my surprise when I'm going to India and I'm encountering different local communities and they self-identify or sometimes are identified uh, by others with a G word, right? So I am saying, okay, why is that? Why, where is it coming from? And um, the answer could be very simple. Colonial forms of knowledge colonial forms of oppression traveled very fast and they are manifested sometimes in language. So um, the, this was an import from the British colonials who came to uh, the South Asian subcontinent and used the label that they have been misusing already for hundreds of years back home to right now newly able communities that they encountered in the um, in the places where they were trying to colonize. So what we see right now, the use of the G word within South Asia um, is a legacy of the colonial of the colonial framework of knowledge and of a taxonomy and of a categorization of people that has very very deep in the sense of like a few hundred years old colonial roots. So we see that particular connection, right, of, of, colo of coloniality. But um, that, that, uh, that labeled people in the same way. But what it became, I think, important in my work and for me to be mindful of is that as I was trying to be very mindful how I use this um, incredibly offensive label within Europe, especially within Romania, where the label is um, is toxic, it actually is used very often, and also in English language, right? Uh, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, 
in English language, it's also an adjective, an adjective that um, uh, places people in certain in certain uh, terrible positions when you use the adjective of G to um, to refer to that. So this terminology that was terribly offensive within the European um, space, especially within Romania itself, uh, becomes something very different within the Indian space. So the particular community that was labeled by others um, as G, um, and uh, they identify most of the time as the Narikurovars, also wanted to be seen, especially by those who were outside of their community as the G community. And why was that? This was a very this was a process uh, for me of learning this because the communities felt that uh, for them reach a certain identity and a certain visibility within their own um, uh, state. The state was Tamil Nadu in this particular case, um, and within India, they needed to be a part of a larger community. And for them, the G word was an identity that could be easily recognized by others and that employing that particular identity could draw attention to their community, could draw support, especially international support. So as you will see in the book, um, the, the community, the Narikurvar community, employs the G word very often on social media in order to draw attention to the um, difficult situations that they find themselves in and request awareness and help both from the Indian government but also from international organizations hoping that they would generate um, a network of support that would make them able to overcome the situations that they are in. So it was. It's. I think it's very important to have this nuanced understanding of the situations because the way we employ the names within European context, and of course, I think um, European U.S. Um, context uh, for for the purpose of this conversation are quite similar. Are actually very different from the ways communities in other parts of the world can make use of this discriminatory or originally discriminatory ways to uh, twist them and empower themselves and gain um, visibility and gain um, respectability within their own communities and beyond. So I think it's very important to make those differences and to thread very lightly. And this is another thing that I learned through the process of of conducting research in the field that a lot of my preconceived notions and a lot of my willingness sometimes to employ certain labels in order to support the communities were falling short when the geographical, cultural, linguistic context has changed. And it, there were a lot of lessons to, I think, be learned and continuously to be learned from this. Um, definitely. I completely agree with you. So I also found it um, so interesting to see that, you know, this negative aspect of their oppression, um, this the oppressive label of the G word was actually able to have been harnessed by the Narakovas in India into um, something 
um, positive where they were able to, you know, garner support and uh, resources um, at the international level. So I, um, it was very interesting to see that and to see that dynamic um, taking place. Um, what I want to um, shift now uh, is to focus on the, the positive aspects into more of the, the negative experiences in terms of um, what you call discrimination and the politics of denial, um, getting to know the the um, systemic and structural injustices that uh, these two groups were subjected to, specifically along the lines of the framework you use in the book, recognition, redistribution, and representation. So I'm hoping you could probably highlight some of these experiences of injustice and why it was so important to highlight them, expose them. Yes, thank you. So, Aline, you rightfully referred to the framework of analysis that I use, and that was inspired by um, the philosopher Nancy Fraser, who said that in order for us to talk about social justice, we need to make sure that the state empowers us to have our identity recognized, to have access to economic means, and also to have a seat at the table where the um, decisions are made or to have political representations. So I took her framework and I flipped it. And instead of looking at what the state can and should do for its citizens in terms of social justice, I was employing these three R's, recognition, redistribution, and representation, as tools that communities often have or not at their um at their end in order to access social justice. So I, um, of course, a redistribution, recognition and um, representation work in tandem in the in uh, situations, right? They are usually interlinked. But for analytical purposes and to um, allow for further analysis, I discuss them as different throughout throughout the book and to see where were some of the obstacles of um, accessing those rights of representation, uh, redistribution, and representation. So you probably know that this labels uh, function dramatically well um, because these labels are usually reflected within historically rooted legal systems. So for example, within Romania, the Roma community um, has been enslaved for hundreds of years. Um, according to the Romanian legislation, there were um, uh, different forms of enslavement and of mistreatment of, of the Romani people for hundreds of years. Similarly, within India, there have been certain criminalization of communities, and those criminalizations were often uh, linked to nomadism. One was labeled a criminal by birth because of their community membership or because of their identity. And they were treated by the larger society as full blast criminals by birth, not by, not by act, but by birth. And especially if you think about within the, uh, within the way that we understand the liberal um, justice system or legal system in which you are considered to be innocent until you're proven guilty, um, this is a total failure of the system. In this, people were considered to be criminal by birth. 
And this has a very long legacy and complicated legacy within South Asia in general, within India particularly. But this form of criminalization of communities will become even more so pertinent during the colonial times where the colonial framework and colonial tools adopted a lot of these um, forms of criminalizations and locked people into these categorizations. And this is visible, especially in the Criminal Stripes Act of 1871, which labeled certain communities as criminals. And after that went into a horribly detailed taxonomy of describing people, assigning people into, into categories, and further making legal uh, premises of how people from of these communities need to be treated by birth, right? This is appalling in itself, and it probably um, dis is disturbing, and rightfully so. Um, of course, the Criminal Stripes Act was abolished. Um, of course, um, uh, in uh, Romania, enslavement is no longer the case. Nevertheless, the legacies of this particular legal systems are still pertinent today. The way we understand communities, the way we uh, look at the dynamics between us and the others, whoever us or the others are, are still very much built along those um, legacies and those historical formulations of criminality that exist. So I think the most massive and brutal way in which communities of Roma in Romania, especially, and Narikurovars within India, have been discriminated uh, because of those labels or because or through this politics of naming is actually through the legal system itself. That after that, it's also visible within the society. I actually think it's an interplay between the society and the legal system that creates and reinforces hierarchizations and discriminations as such. Um, but um, what we see is that, for example, one of the tropes that many of, of the listeners could be familiar with is this idea that um, communities that have a history of nomadism or have a tradition of being mobile uh, do not really engage with the state and they are sometimes resisting the state. Um, resisting the people in power, and they are there to just do something different, opposing the state or opposing the status quo. And this is um, obviously a very gross generalization and, and terrible stereotyping, but it's absolutely proven incorrect when we are looking on the ground, because in spite of this um, discrimination and marginalization that communities are often subjected to, we see that people are still willing to engage with the state and make demands to the state um, and try to be included within the state. And one of the particular aspects of the Roma communities and the Narikurovars communities, um, which really needs to be dismantled, and, and talked about it very differently is the way they understand education. Is this, is this terrible misbelief that um, Roma and the Narikurovars do not want to send their kids to school, to put it blandly. In my experience in the field, talking both at the level of the community and also at the level of the elites, I did not encounter this particular um, attitude 
at any point. Um, all the Roma that I engage with um, at all levels and the Narikurvas that worked with me on this project, one of the first things that they told me was, we really want to go to school. We really want to go to school. They were very much aware of the fact that education was their uh, way of accessing rights. They were very much aware. They, they were very conscientious of it. And they were willing to engage this kind of tool for their individual and their um, and their community uh, and their community behavior um, and so and and movement. They really wanted to do this. However, when I talked to them, okay, do do the kids go to school? How are you managing that and so on? That's when they were telling me, well, we really want to send the kids to school, but look, the school is two hours away, one hour away by bus, it's very difficult to send our kids because the buses are unreliable. Also in Romania, in the particular um, locality that I was working with, which is the town of Ormenish, um, they do not have a high school there. So the, the children have to go to the big city, which is Brasov, which is about like one hour away. The ticket to go from that particular village to the big city to, to attend high school, it was at the time about $2 one way. You can imagine when um, uh, the salary, it's about $200 a month. Uh, how can you actually support the child and pay them $4 only to take the bus uh, five times a week, right? That's an exorbitant sum of money. That's not considering the the food and other necessities that the that the child needs there. So we are looking at forms of marginalizations that are very much embedded into the structures of the society. When you have communities that are geographically so isolated and you don't have forms of transport um, that allows for for the children to move and to attend school, then you are in effect, discriminating against that particular community. Similarly, with the Narikurovar communities, they were telling me they, they want to send their kids to school and they had a school within their small locality, but they were telling me it's very hard to get teachers because the teachers do not want to come in the Narikurovar community locality. They do not want to be part of that locality itself because they feel that this was... Um, this was a problematic community that they didn't want to engage with. So it's extremely difficult to find teachers. So sometimes they would find teachers, but the teachers themselves were unreliable. Sometimes they would come, sometimes they would not come. And this is only for primary school. Um, and um, of course, the building as well was not very um, in, in a very great shape. And um, South India deals with monsoons on the regular basis, which makes situations even more difficult to, uh, with, with respect to the infrastructures and maintaining the schools and maintaining the safety of the, of the students and the safety of the faculty. And again, we see these forms of institutionalization of uh, these discriminatory practices. This is not about one individual or lacking funds. This is about certain communities being continuously excluded from accessing those uh, those forms like education, like healthcare, and so on, of accessing rights and being included into the larger society. 
So what I have seen in my work is that these communities are far from being helpless. They empower themselves formally and also informally. And I think it's really important to acknowledge this form of uh, informal empowerment as forms of empowerment and not exclude them from from the general understanding of social justice, but they continuously try to empower themselves to access rights um, and to access the state in spite of the fact that um, it's very difficult to, to access them. One of the things that really marked me when I was in the field was a particular uh, instance, a particular situation when I was talking to one of the teachers in the school in, in Romania, in the, in the Ormanish locality, and the teacher, um, she's a teacher of Romani language, she was telling me how difficult it was for her because the Roma children eat separately lunch from the Romanian and Hungarian kids. They, they share the same school, the Romanian, Roma, and Hungarian kids but they have to eat lunch separately. And I I mean, of course, this is horrendous. This is a reminder of the segregation uh, practices within the United States uh, that also has been deeply rooted and so on. I mean, it's been already um, so much a part of, of our world that like when you hear this immediately, you get... Um, you, you become aware of this as a, as a terrible form of, of discrimination and racism. And then when I asked her and we discussed this a little bit further, she continued to tell me that after the Roma children have lunch, um, somehow it's instituted by the school that the cleaning personnel comes and cleans the, the lunchroom with bleach. Um, and this was just a horrible horrible image that this conversation brought to view about the deep discrimination that it's taking place at the level of everyday practices that children of very early age are subjected to. I mean, it's it's absolutely abominable that this was somehow instituted with what, within one of the institutions that exists within the state, right? And this is something that is so much a part of the realities that it's really important for us to acknowledge that those when we are looking at the struggles for justice that communities have. I too um, remember reading your book on that particular um, case of like segregation um, between the Hungarian and the Romania children in that school was particularly disturbing and alarming. I really couldn't believe like something like that um, was um, taking place, um, you know, well, so recently with in, in the last decade in a European country. Um, uh, as I said, definitely harkens back to the um, realities of um, segregation in the United States. Um, but uh, I, um, I, I want to um, talk uh, or dig into what you mentioned um, some of the ways in which the Roma and Narakova communities um, attempt to mitigate their oppressive circumstances and empower themselves. I remember you made the distinction just now when you were talking and in the book of informal um, versus um, formal um, practices um, 
to access uh, justice. Could you um, speak on this distinction and also some of the um, informal on informal ways they were able to, you know, access justice? Yes, yeah, so of course. So one of the formal ways of accessing justice is probably very familiar to many to many people, and that is you really have to organize and you have to advocate for your rights in the political sphere and hope to change the legal system, the political system, and after that, um, or in, in tandem, to act at the level of the society. And uh, communities like the Roma or the Narikurovars, that's another myth that really needs to be dismantled, is that... Um, Oh, they do not want to engage in in this political uh, political dialogue, right? With um, with other communities, completely untrue. They were very much open to engage at every level. And uh, one of the things that impressed me the most within this work is how tirelessly the leaders from the Roma and the Narikorabar community are working for their for the benefit of their communities. Um, I. Um, used and abused friendships in this in this work by by getting back to them by asking questions by engaging them and they were always there always present wearing multiple hats at all times and acting at local level international level in the media as activists as scholars so it's absolutely impressive to see the amount of work that is taking place um, it's true that this kind of formal work takes mostly place at the level of the elite um, and what I mean by elites is usually people from the community themselves that are educated and have um, certain access to um, networks and were able to access larger forms of, um, of the political sphere. So it's a very loose definition of, of elites that, that I'm employing here, but they are doing that. Within Romania, um, within Romania, the communities, the Roma, um, the Roma communities have been politically active for about 50 years, and they have been committed to different struggles, included and not only to changing the name from the G word to the Roma word. And one of that is uh, to change the word um, into the legal documents um, of the Romanian government. So they have been petitioning for these changes, they have been rallying, they have been organizing, and they were able to manage this particular change within the official documents of the government of Romania. That's not to say that there were not backlashes about this or that the conversation has been settled. Far from it. There are still conversations taking place in the Romanian politics that the term Roma and Romania are too closely related, even though they refer to interconnected but very different communities. So there is still a lot of um, controversy around this within the Romanian politics. But nevertheless, the... Uh, assiduous work that the Romani people have done managed to implement certain clear changes within the community. Similarly, the Narikurovar community was recognized within the state of Tamil Nadu as a most backward community, which is a name given officially to certain communities. Problematic in itself, but this is the official term that it's um, that was given most backward classes. Um, and uh, they were categorized as such. Um, but the Narikurovar communities 
really tried to identify themselves as scheduled tribe, which means to be recognized on the very, again, problematic hierarchy that is operating right now, um, to be recognized as uh, the community that is in most need of support from the state. In reservations, which it's probably similar uh, for the American audience to the affirmative action pro project. So um, for them to be recognized as scheduled tribe, so for them to have access to more um, support from the, from the government. So they have been engaging again right now for about 30 years into petitioning the government, going on hunger strikes in New Delhi in very uh, well-known spaces. Uh, for uh, community and political activism and for uh, for um, uh, raising awareness about certain issues. And they have been uh, going in the parliament. They have been trying to work in every media venue in order to have their voices heard. And I'm very happy to say, and my book came earlier than this, but the Narikurovar community officially succeeded in changing their um, uh, name from most backward class to scheduled tribe in the Indian national um, legislation. So they officially made tremendous uh, steps into their identity recognition and having um, a clear say into this politics of naming and shaking up the, the paradigm that placed them in a situation that they didn't think it was representative to them. So they were very successful in doing so. So at the formal level, we see a lot of increase of political activism, of communities that um, are um, deemed by others as politically inactive. And that's completely inaccurate because they have been politically active. And the informal ways in which they also have been accessing political and and um, economic rights or social rights um, is important to to think of certain certain aspects. And I will tell you an anecdote that I think exemplifies this greatly um, that relates the politics of naming with informal practices of accessing economic redistribution. Um, and that is that. Uh, the Narikurovars, because they are mislabeled and misracialized uh, and misdiscriminalized and, and discriminalized and so on for a very long time, uh, they are sometimes, most times actually, thought to be people of the forest. The Narikurovar itself means um, hunters of jackals or hunters of jackals, and there is... Um, a reference to their to their community being people who are hunting within forests, um, who know how to use weaponry very well, and as a result of it, they know how to use the forests very well. So, when um, the COVID nineteen um, pandemic hit the community very badly, um, the community was trying to make ends meet, and the um, the community has been what the within the Indian paradigm it's called settled, uh, meaning that the government has given them certain um, certain housing. Problematic in itself, where is the housing located, and 
the type of housing that it's given. But nevertheless, uh, uh, it's considered that they have been officially settled uh, in converted commas settled. Um, but um, it has been very hard for them to make ends meet uh, within their own communities. So when, so trying to make ends meet, the Narikurovars have shared with me that uh, they were going into the markets and they were selling some sort of a product that was made out of natural herbs and they were selling and advertising it as a product that could help one's immune system and one can become stronger and hopefully fight uh, the all the repercussions of the pandemic as such. And they were very excited to share this with me and they were very happy about this and they were very thoughtful and mindful of that and and wanting to really make a change in their small way for, for people to take advantage of this and for, for people to become healthier as a result of this and combat in their own way the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So I was very interested in this process. So I asked them, oh, so... What is it? And they told me some of the ingredients that they are using in in this in this. And after that, I asked them also, "How do you get them?" And I said, well, and they told me, "Oh, we go and buy them in bulk from the big city. In this case, was Chennai, the city." And I said, oh, "Okay, that makes sense." But then they shared with me that the reason why the people outside of the community were buying their products was because of this essentialization of their community as forest people. So they were thought to have somehow access to some ancient type of knowledge and some knowledge of the herbs and knowledge of where to procure the herbs in a way that was completely exoticizing the community, essentializing it, but nevertheless thinking that their concussion is going to have this, this property, right? And the Narikurovars were very much aware of this stereotyping and of this essentializing, very much aware of it. And they were able to employ this essentialization and discrimination because that's what it was, right? Like considering them like completely different and magical in their own way in order to um, find ways for them to participate into the economy. Right? So they use their image that was essentialized and racialized by the others in order to empower themselves and in order to access economic means and also participate into creating hopefully a healthier community as such. Right, But I think that those gestures that too often are, are falling, are, are going under the radar or are dismissed as problematic, need to be understood within the larger context in which communities as such are strong, but they're also very much aware that they are being racialized, discriminating, essentialized, and so on. But they are also very resilient. And they're able to take those labels and interpret them and reuse them in a way that they can actually make, like in, enhance their access to economic means and to, in this case, as I call it in the book, the redistribution or have redistributive justice, right, in, in this very basic way. But I think that this kind of processes have been too often mislabeled or misunderstood, and this they need to be understood within their particular context of, of empowerment. I think you're absolutely right. And, Christina, unfortunately, I think we're 
um, nearing the end of the time we have for the interview. So um, with that um, note, I think that's uh, I think that's a good note to end on on that positive, uh, positive aspect of empowerment. Well, it's at this point I'll ask, you know, what's next for you? Um, are you hoping to build on the ideas you explored in the book? Uh, any new material that you currently have out or currently working on that you'd like to share at this point in time? Anything at all you would like to bring attention to? Yeah, thank you. It was such a such a pleasure. And thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to talk a little bit further about the Roma and the Nari Kurovas um, community struggle for justice um, in today's world. Um, as this project um, came to to an end and to a really, really good end for the Nari Kurovar community who got their scheduled tribe status, so I'm very, very happy to, to share this with you. The, uh, my new book, uh, it's uh, also on the works on migration, but it looks at immigrants in the U.S. military and it's called um, The Making of the Immigrant Soldier. And it looks at how race, gender, class, and ethnicity intersect in the U.S. military. So that's the new book that is also out. But I'm engaged right now in another project that is still within the framework of mobility and migration. And that is, I'm looking right now at how um, climate change, particularly environmental disasters, are linked to mobility framework. And my new project is called Who Leaves, Who Stays, looking at what are our possibilities of moving away or stay when climate change is hitting some of the most marginalized and sometimes vulnerable members of the communities? Sounds like some very interesting work. Um, it's amazing that you already have a new book out um, when um, considering that um, Power on the Move was released in 2022. Uh, you seem to be a very productive scholar, I will say. <laughs> But uh, (laughs) before we say goodbye, could you let everyone know where they could find your books and where they can find out more about you and keep up with your work? Thanks, Ayn. So uh, the first book um, is published by Bloomsbury Academic. That's Power on the Move, published by Bloomsbury Academic. The second one, uh, you can find it on the University of Illinois website. But of course, you can also find all of this and more uh, about me on the New York University Global Liberal Studies website, where there are more details and links to all of this work. Oh, fantastic. Well, if you ever want to you know, talk about your new book or um, any of your future work, um, whenever it comes out, um, I'd love to have you on again in the future. This was such... Uh, um, fantastic and illuminating conversation about um, the Roma and the Narcovas. Uh, for me, a group of people and who whose oppression I was not really aware of, not being from um, Europe, you know, being based in the Caribbean. So it was um, very interesting to see um, how their experiences of injustice, how they went about accessing um, justice and their situations in many ways were extremely resonant and I must applaud you um, for the work that you did. Thank you so very much, Alim. It was a pleasure being here with you. Thank you.